Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Moves Podcast, where we talk about how to develop happy, healthy, resilient children into happy, healthy, resilient adults. I'm your host, Dr. Debbie Ray. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another two-parter with the Right Moves Podcast. I have Jenny Iyer with me today to discuss nutrition policies for children in schools. She and I have known each other for a few years now through her work around recess advocacy, which led to her involvement on the Link Advisory Board, and now with her American Heart Association role. Jenny has so much energy and positivity around what we can do with public health in the community. I'm so excited to have Jenny on this podcast with me today to share her thoughts and experiences around nutrition policies that advocate for healthy meals for all children in schools. Jenny Iyer graduated with a BS in biochemistry from Abilene Christian University and earned her Master of Public Health with a concentration in maternal and child health from the University of Texas School of Public Health. She's a native Texan. She spent her entire career focused on improving the lives of children and their families across the state working to make Texas a great place to live, work, pray, and play. Her work has included passing legislation at the state level that has increased food access for students across the state, partnering with school districts to expand meal programs before and after the school day, and conducting research around physical activity in schools to inform state and local legislation. As the Vice President of Health Strategies for American Heart Association's North Texas area, she focuses her time on implementing community-facing programs, advocating for sustainable policy solutions, and ensuring all North Texans have the ability to live longer, healthier lives. Her favorite job, though, is raising her three children with her husband, Jesse, and drinking lots of coffee. So at this point, I will welcome Jenny Iyer. Well, hello, Jenny. It's so good to have you on the podcast, Right Moves. Um, it, it, it's been a while since we visited, but thank you for coming on. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Dr. Ray. Absolutely. All right. So I like to start the conversations, um, especially a first podcast with someone, by telling us a little bit about you that's not really in your bio, you know, just something that you'd like to share that give us a, um, a better glimpse into who you are. Oh, goodness. Um, I will try to keep it succinct. I feel like I could probably not talk about myself, but talk about all the people in my life, life that uh, help make it. Right <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, um, you know, what's not on my bio, I, I grew up here in North Texas and I count it as quite an honor to be able to work and in my community, in the community that, that, I grew up in and be able to hopefully benefit those that live in my community. I also grew up uh, as an, a very active child and athlete. Um, playing and being active has been, you know, in my DNA since I started gymnastics when I was, oh goodness, I think three or four and then played soccer, you know, all the way, soccer and volleyball were the two sports I played. I also have two uh, younger sisters and um through them was exposed to other sports and um, we just had a, a pretty active childhood growing up. And uh, that's kind of really what's led me, I think a little bit to do what I, I do uh, because I um, try to try to bring that, that type of thinking, that type of parenting um, that I had into, into my everyday life, both at home and at work. That is awesome. You know, um, it, it does seem to be, very connected that if you had a 
a pretty active childhood. You become active or you stay active as an adult and you also make sure that your kids are active too, which is really, really awesome. Uh, so you had three, you had two siblings besides yourself, two sisters. Two sisters. So three of you. And were you oldest, middle, or? I'm the oldest. Okay. And the, and the oldest, you know, are, are pretty responsible and make sure that, but I did meet one the other day that's not very responsible. She ended up being just the opposite. Uh, but it's interesting because I think the oldest usually is more like the opposite gender of the parent. So you'd be more like your dad. And that's a really good, I'm trying to think. I, I think I'm a good mix of both of my parents. Are you? Okay. I am. And, um, but my, I'm, if you asked my sisters, they would tell you that they had um, a mom and a half because sometimes <laughs> they'd say that I was acting as their mom and I was not. And and we are pretty close in age. There's about four years that separate okay. all three. So we were in grade school together. They went to, ended up going to different school than me in um, middle and high school, but we were, you know, had the same friends, had the same, played the same activities. My, I'm the shortest of them all. So I'm, you know, on a good day, five, four. I have one sister who's 5'11", my dad's 6'1", six, six and my mom's short like me, <laughs> although she wow. claims she's slightly taller than me. And then my youngest sister is right in the middle, like 5'7". So um, everybody laughs when they hear that I have such a tall, like I have lots of tall people. I am quite, quite small. <laughs> yeah, no, but you know, that's what happened to me too. My brother is the same, I think about the same height as my dad, which is around 6'4". And my mom is five four and I'm five five. So, yes. you know, they they were thinking when my brother was born, oh my gosh, he's going to be the short one and Debbie's going to be the tall one, you know. But no, that didn't happen. I was the shorter one and he was the taller one. So okay, well you're giving me hope because yep. I have two. I have three children, a, a one daughter and two boys. My youngest is enormous, and my middle son is not yet. And I'm like, oh. I'm going to have one mammoth child. My daughter's actually trending um, taller than me as well. So it, I might be the shortest for the whole, the rest of my, my life. You might, but you're a mighty active individual, right? You, you get to yeah. it and you go. It doesn't uh, matter. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, you know, just to kind of get us started, um, you are part of our link advisory board and I'm so happy to have you on. Um, on that board and as part of this podcast, because you have so much to share about what you're doing. Um, but, you know, as far as what you've done in your career, as you said in a minute ago, you've kind of led that same healthy, active mindset in the way you work as the way you parent and the way you work for yourself to make sure you stay healthy. Can you tell me um, kind of how you took that road to go in a professional life that gave you that balance of, hey, this is how I want to work. This is how I want to do kind of thing. Sure. Um, it's been a little bit of a journey, Dr. Ray. I, you know, when I um, was in college, my undergraduate degrees in biochemistry and I planned on going to medical school. That was my, um, when I was in the fifth grade. I made that decision. I lost a very close friend to childhood mm -hmm. cancer and 
my, I was going to be a pediatric oncologist. And I stuck with that until I graduated college, took the MCATs and didn't fare so well and decided I got to, I'm going to have to, let's do something else. I had a professor in college that said, have you ever looked into public health, getting a master's in public health? And I thought, nope, I really hadn't had been very, very narrow focused. Um, and so looked into that. I got married right out of college and my husband uh, went to law school in Tulsa. And I think Tulsa is really, my time there is really what shaped me to get me to where I am now. So I'm very grateful and feel very blessed um, uh, that I had the opportunity in Tulsa to work at an elementary school um, in my my time there. And at the elementary school, I my eyes were very much opened to uh, the disparities that came with, you know, with children who who didn't have everything that that certainly I had when I was growing up, or even just what your you know typical child might have. So you know, growing up, I played outside all the time. You know, safe neighborhood friends came over. We would play football, or you know, out front or something. You know, being active, we would stay outside. And I, I think we could say this about a lot of kids now. You know, used to. And I, I feel like everybody says this back in the day, we could stay out until the sun went down and mom and dad wouldn't worry about it. And now, you know, that's just not the case. And when I worked in, in Tulsa, I worked at a, a school that where um, 98% of the children qualify for a free or, do, or reduced meal. Uh, so I was uh, working with uh, high children in, in high poverty and many of whom would go home to neighborhoods that did not have, um, you know, that they weren't allowed to actually, they were not allowed by their parents to play outside um, until their parents got home. And so the school that I um, worked at had had recesses more than once a day and did what it could to get keep kids active. But, you know, it was battling a lot of other things that were that were kind of moving and um, in in those children's lives. And so I finished grad school um, after we moved back to Dallas, um, from, from Tulsa, I worked in that elementary school for two years and I learned so very much just about, um, a variety of different things, but also about the hurdles that many, many children have, uh, to access to healthy foods, to nutrition education, um, to, uh, being able to, why it's important to be active and having access to safe places to play, I remember, you know, we had a family that I just adored and their, their children were, were probably not, um, not the healthiest, but their big, um, their big treat for good grades or for anything was CC's pizza because CC's pizza, you know, is, is low cost, but you have a fun time, right? It's, it's um, my kids would love it. Um, and so just being able to, to, you know, talk to them and think, I, I did not talk to them about taking their children to CC's, but just to hear the kids and how exciting it was. But then um, someone came in and started talking about health and nutrition, and they were so excited to learn about it and how maybe instead of, you know, they could have a salad so that, you know, you got to see the excitement that the kids had about trying to, or not trying, but learning how to eat healthier and then making those decisions. And so being in that community and getting to know these children and their families, it was a small school, very small school. It was just um, such an amazing opportunity, and that propelled me to then uh, work a lot in food access, which is where um, I, I spent a majority of 
the beginning part of my career because every child in that school got free breakfast, got free lunch, and a free after school meal. So they were getting access to to you know nutritious foods during the day. Um, and I saw the importance of that. We had breakfast in the classroom. And so for the first part of my career, I spent uh, working to expand breakfast, school breakfast access in elementary schools, middle and high schools, actually across the state of Texas, um, because that was a, a, a focus of the te- state of Texas required all students that were eligible for a free or reduced meal, if they um, went to schools where 80% of their classmates also qualified for that, then the school was required to serve school breakfast. And so that was my first taste a little bit into the state legislature and and policy and advocacy, and also um, working with school districts and trying to get them to pass policies that would improve the health and well-being of their students. And and so uh, I, I just, I think, the time I spent in Tulsa really propelled me into where I am today because I saw a school that was doing all it could to help its students and their families. And, and they were successful. They were creating a a great environment, a, a welcoming environment. And those kids, you know, had access to so many things that they wouldn't have had they gone to a school that, that didn't take that as a priority. And so I, um, have that visual in my head. I still remember the students that I, I taught, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And um, I think about them regularly when I get to do my work. And uh, that's really what introduced me to you and to Link was, you know, this work in schools and, you know, food is one thing, but being active is another. And that was a piece of the school I worked at, you know, having a couple of recesses a day. And so uh, that's, that's really what has just motivated me is that time in Tulsa and then now having my own kids and uh, wanting them to be outside and, and trying to, uh, you know, just make that happen on a more regular basis for, for all kids that, that I um, can help. Yeah. I tell you, you've had a, a really interesting and uh, vibrant forecast of things to do, you know, as you move through. And what I like about your journey and something I want people on the podcast to hear is that where you think you're going is not necessarily where you're going. So you thought, hey, I'm going to med school and I this is what I'm going to do. And that really wasn't what your plan was going to be. I mean, there was there was obviously a different plan for you. And you heard that you took it and you ran with it. You didn't let yourself get down about it and say, well, this is my life. This is my dream. This is all I have to live for. If I can't do this, who am I? Right. You just did. You went a different direction. Correct. Very correct. The best okay. laid plans, right? The good Lord had a much different plan for me. Yeah. And I, I'm that oldest child. As we talked about, I had a very good plan. Dr. Yeah. <laughs> did not go according. My life didn't go according to that plan. <laughs> but but that's, you know, I think that message right there, and I'm, I'm going to move on, but that message is a very important message to our young people going through right now and trying to figure out what they want to do. S- some kids come through and say, this is what I want to do. And as associate dean, when I was associate dean at TCU, Um, I fulfilled that role for many years, and I saw many students who would say to me in my office with tears in their eyes, 
this is this is all I want to do. And please help me make my dream come true. And I'm like, but you can't, you're not doing well enough to have that dream, right? That, to come true. There's got to be another way that you can do what you want to do within the access that you have, the opportunities that you have. And, you know, I wish I could go back and I could see where everybody is that came into that office and that's where they were. But to hear you say that, I really wanted to point it out because to me, that is a cru- crucial message that you talked about, but it, it just kind of was part of your journey, right? And for some students, their journey stops if they can't fulfill that piece, right? And I I just wanted to bring that up again and have you say, yes, that's exactly what it was because you've done so well, but you've taken different routes to get there. The second thing I, I wanted to have you talk more about is, um, you know, I had um, John Medina, Dr. Medina on, oh gosh, it was it was back in the first season in the spring. And he says there are three pivotal pieces to our lives that if they're not functioning correctly, our brains do not function correctly. Number one is sleep. Number two is activity. And number three is nutrition. So you're working really in the prime area, right? You're, you're working with healthy kids. Well, to, to bring health to kids, to parents, to communities. Um, I want you to talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, about how you've worked with policy uh, in the early days, not not where you are now, but just in the early days with the free and reduced lunch, lunches, and then it became breakfast because that didn't happen until at least in the last eight to 10 years. Before mm-hmm. then, it was only lunchtime or snack time, right? Mm-hmm. So how how does policy like that evolve? Sure. So I, I started my career right out of grad school with an organization called Children at Risk, and I feel very grateful that I got to start there because they are a research and advocacy organization, and they, along with several other organizations, advocated for that breakfast policy. So there are other states that have this breakfast policy where if you're in a high uh, poverty school, you receive access to free breakfast, you know, no matter what. Everybody does because when everybody's eating, it's a lot more fun. You don't feel embarrassed that you didn't get to eat, you know, before you came to school, everybody's eating. And it did, it actually, that bill in particular went up before the state legislature for a couple of sessions that I believe at least two before it actually passed. And that, as is a lot of policy I've learned over my time, it's not, not very common for the first time it gets up into the state legislature does it pass? It takes a little bit of time to educate everyone and help them to, to kind of understand that bigger picture that you're going, going for. Um, so for that, that bill, you know, there was a lot, there were a lot of um, unique uh, positions that supported it. And I, it's actually one of my favorite stories. And I tell this often to my team that I work with now, uh, to anyone who will listen, Dr. Ray, I share this story. And I have well, good. You've got a platform now. <laughs> and I have nothing to do with it. I should say I have absolutely nothing to do with this. I came into Children at Risk after this bill had already been passed. And my job, um, because there was an ability for school districts to opt out. So my job was to ensure that school districts didn't opt out. 
So uh, Mandy Kimball is is um, the person for Children at Risk who actually worked to pass this, but uh, it was obviously a hunger-focused bill. We all know that breakfast is an incredibly important meal in our day, and for some reason, you know, kids get access to school breakfast during testing. You know, that is a priority. We feed our kids when they're testing, but we didn't always feed them when they were supposed to be learning, and so it really didn't quite make sense. So uh, there was this big push to make sure kids got school breakfast. As I mentioned, it didn't pass the first time. Uh, It didn't pass the second time. On the third time, um, Mandy was was part of a group that brought in other people and organizations that were going to benefit from this bill passing. And, you know, we brought in school educators who were were for it, school nutrition directors who were for it. um, And we also brought in the dairy farmers who were also benefit uh, because more kids would be drinking more milk. And I, and when that happened, it passed. And, and so I, that to me is, um, that's how I, I just think it's policy is fascinating, no matter, uh, where we are today or, or where we were when this bill passed, it is, you know, you can sometimes become tunnel vision as this is my bill. I don't want anyone else to, you know, policy, whatever it is, local state, um, you know, this is how it's going to pass and people need to understand why it's going to pass. But when you take a step back and say, no, it's a, it's a larger group and there are innovative ways, strategic ways to think about things. um, That's really what helps at the end of the day. And I just love that story because it, it just shows you that you, the, you know, bringing in a coalition of people, bringing in different viewpoints and everybody being able to show how it would benefit them, how it would benefit students, how it would benefit our state agriculture, right? Because we're, we're supporting our, our Texas dairy farmers. Um, we're supporting nutrition directors because they now have uh, an easier way of serving their kids. They're not collecting money. They can serve it in the classroom. They can serve it in, a, in several different ways. And so um, that, that was my first taste. I, again, I did, wasn't in that process, but I got to see kind of from after the passage on uh, and it was it was fascinating, and um, that's yeah. That policy is not always easy, but it's kind of fun and and very strategic. Yeah. It's a great story, and you know, um, dairy farmers they have it tough, right? I mean, it, it's a tough road with them, and to be able to say that they were one of the pivotal groups, that's awesome. I love that. I love and that. and out of the blue, you wouldn't have thought. I know. Them, have thought it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, um, so with policies like this, what kind of breakfast items do they decide on or choose? Because it seems like, you know, one of the debates with kids is, well, kids don't like this or kids don't like that. And, but if you, if that's what they have, if, if that's what's served, they usually will come around and they'll eat it. But how did y'all make or how did they make decisions on what would be part of the breakfast menu? So um, that's a great question. And they did not make any type of um, policy around what would be served. This policy only impacted those schools participate, those school districts participating in the free or reduced lunch program and breakfast program, which meant they had to abide by USDA meal patterns. So it's actually those USDA federal meal patterns that impact um, impact what was served. And then the state of Texas also has a little bit of 
um, control over what can be offered. What's interesting is that through once this bill was passed, the USDA actually changed some of its standards. So it in it decreased the amount of sodium allowed. Um, it you know required non-fat or low-fat milk in some certain circumstances. So it was making it healthier. So uh, along the way, it became you know breakfast was required, and then through other changes, the 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 food that was served was healthier. I would also say, though, I I came across in my time some incredibly innovative school nutrition directors. Um, you know, they the best of the best would go out and survey their students and say, mm. over the past two weeks, what were the foods that you really liked? What did you not like? What did you know? What was uh, just what would you change? What would you you know? What what um, should we keep? And so they used that to constantly change their food and to offer the the best products to their kids. And those are the ones that had the highest participation because the kids got to, to be, students got to be involved. And I would also tell you, I, I had the privilege of being able to travel all across the state of Texas. And, um, you know, we have different cultures all across our state. We're a very diverse state. And it was um, fascinating to see the different foods that were offered in different parts of our state that were really trying to, um, be very culturally sensitive to the students that they were serving. Um, you know, with some students might like this item more because it's much more culturally appropriate, whereas students in this part of the state would have no idea what we were talking about. And and so I, I found that fascinating that directors, at child nutrition directors, they know what their their kids like and, and they can provide it. I saw some amazing from scratch breakfast burritos that were made. I was getting hungry whenever I had to go around it. So, uh, yeah. about that. Was it taquitos and tacos and, and burritos and things? Yeah. Yeah. Breakfast burritos. Yeah. Those breakfast burritos can be amazing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you put them with egg. And well, I don't know what they put all in it, but egg and awesome. sometimes it's eggs and potatoes and cheese. and Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah. So they were making them from scratch. Some places were, yeah, not yeah. certainly not the big, 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 big schools, but they're all trying a little bit to, or yeah. at the time when I was really involved in it, trying to be creative and, and, you know, they wanted students to eat. So it was trying to see what worked best for them and then trying to, to get, um, get their kids to eat it. That's awesome. Um, I'm really glad to get a glimpse into that. You know, you, you never know from school to school, district to district what the information is. I talked to a principal one time who said, you know, it breaks her heart when they're not in school for the summer or they're not in school for holidays because the kids, many of the kids that are on these free and reduced breakfast and lunch will not have Mm -mm. consistent meals through that time. Um, Mm -mm. So, yeah, it's, you know, even principals are like, we, we gotta have this as much as we can to make sure our kids are getting good food. Mm-hmm. Um, do you notice that when you have the breakfast and lunch kind of things there and it's, it's more of a healthy environment for them, do you notice whether the kids, uh, the obesity rates come down at all or, and I know we're going to talk about some of this with American Heart, um, uh, on a different podcast, but, um, uh, just as far as just starting a program like that, did it help kids with their obesity rates, you think? So I don't I don't have any data to show that by any means, but I will tell you that when food is offered, it 
and food, I should say food is offered and it's good food that kids want to eat, you would see them less likely to eat hot Cheetos and Takis out of a vending machine, right? So if that lunch is tasty and um, easily easily accessible or they had a wide variety, then kids are, are less likely to choose something that wouldn't, you know, to take the place of it. And I think that's when I, before I was at Children at Risk, I, uh, and when I was in grad school, I was doing a lot of physical activity work um, with students and, and just getting to see that part alongside the, the food access piece. And it was, it amazed me at how many kids survived off of chips and a Coke for, yeah. for lunch. And um, I think to your point about when school's not in session, I think that's something that a lot, you know, it's an inexpensive meal that kids can eat. So I don't have the data. I would say that, you know, in my opinion, when food is tasty and easily accessible, you're not going to have, you're going to have kids eating those meals much more frequently. That's good. That mm-hmm. um, let me expand this. Uh, when we talk about these meals and stuff, does this go across middle high school as well? So mm-hmm. do all kids get these meals across the spectrum? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so you could do it. Um, you legally were supposed to do it at any school uh, that met that 80% threshold of, of free and reduced eligible children. As you get into high school, those numbers dwindle just simply because you have more kids going to school there. So uh, sometimes high schools wouldn't qualify for it. And so they wouldn't get it or, you know, schools wouldn't serve it. High school is also a hard, a hard one to nail down. Um, I know when I started, when I went to school, my high school started at 730 in the morning and I was barely awake. And so eating food was not on my mind. Um, but, you know, there's there's some great innovation around a second chance breakfast. So there are some pretty, pretty um, unique and wonderful things happening at the high school level available to all. I think it's I think everybody would generally say it's a little bit harder to get those older kids to eat uh, than it is the younger ones. But yeah, you know, in my work, like your work, you always talk to different people in different parts of education. Um, But I was talking to a a person the other day who said that a school who had been getting free and reduced uh, breakfast and lunch for all their kids last year, two kids away from having it this year. Mm-hmm. Two kids. So my question to you is, being a policy person, being somebody who advocates, right? If your school, if you found out that your school was was two kids away, my thought was go find two to, to enroll. <laughs> <laughs> After you get your breakfast and lunch, then uh-huh. you know, they can go back where they need to be. No, but but that was my first thought is two kids. Come on, let's find us two kids. Yeah. But let's say that's the case. Mm-hmm. What what kind of resources do they have out there that they might be able to do something until they do have that line again? Or the other question for you, so you can answer that one, but then a follow-up to it is, um, could it be that we go back to policymakers to try to have this for all kids, no matter what school they're, you know, as long as it's public school, this is what we do because it's equal access for all kids. So both, both of those, I mean, what do we do? Two well, kids I, can, or- I, can, I can take that last question first. Cause it's okay. an easier answer. And I would tell okay. you that, you know, um, at, in my work at the American Heart Association, free 
Meals for All is, is something that we work on ab like advocacy-wise. Uh, our counterparts in a couple of other states, um, Colorado being one of them, just passed it. So free meals for all students. This was a uh, policy that came down during COVID. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, every child ate for free no matter what. That um, happened here too in Texas, right? It happened yeah. everywhere across yeah, the room. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so a lot of schools didn't want to go back. They wanted to keep that. So um, some states have implemented that statewide free meals for all kids in, in public schools. Um, so I think that's one way. I also think, you know, you also want to, policy is tricky. So you, you want to, you, you want to be strategic when you're opening up that, that book, you don't want to open it up and then lose what you have. So being careful about how um, we go about that strategically. I'm sh I know there would be people in Texas um, that would be very ready to, to have that conversation. Um, I think though, for the school that you mentioned, there are uh, so many ways that the USDA has created for schools to be able to serve free meals for all. Um, I will not bore you with in the weeds details, but there are a couple of different ways. You know, there are, are very large school districts that have high poverty rates across the district. Maybe not every individual school, but in general, it's high. So they they can apply for a program that would make it easily accessible for all schools. Um, and some take it a school by school approach, which makes it a little bit more difficult to, to qualify. Um, but that 80% that I gave you, that's the, that's the policy line. I would tell you that there are school districts all across our state, all across our country that do, that their internal policy is lower than that. So they say any, any school with 60% eligible, mm -hmm. they'll do it, you know, they'll, they'll do it just because they think that, you know, it's, they get more breakfast participation if they're offering it for free um, to everyone. So there's no law that says you cannot do it. Um, it's just one that says you have to do it if you right. have a certain eligible um, number, a uh, certain percentage of eligible population. So I would say that with two kids, um, you could easily swing that and, and probably still make ends meet. I don't yeah. know the situation, so I wouldn't want to you know, yeah. make that assumption. I can't remember which school it was now, but yeah. We can advocate. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that parents can also, you know, school health advisory councils, uh, that's a great place to, to go and talk about and advocate locally for this. Yeah. You know, you certainly could go to the state, but it's also easier to talk to your school board member or talk to your child nutrition director directly and say, what can we do to expand this program? That's awesome. And it's a great place for us to, finish up today. I think, um, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of different things related to what you've done on your journey, but at the same time, I think there's some really nice pieces of information that parents, schools, communities can take and work with to create a better place for kids and adults in their surroundings, you know, so I think that's good. So, Jenny, thanks for being on today. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back on and we can talk about American Heart and uh, some of the other things you're doing as well. Anytime. I appreciate the time to, to talk with you all today. It was great to see you. And as always, take care, have a great week, and play often. This podcast was brought to you by the Link Center for Healthy Play at Texas Christian University. 
To learn more about the Link Center and the resources mentioned in today's episode, visit our website at www.linkproject.tcu.edu.